We're on uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, on page 1131. So Romans chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'll keep that one verse before you, and there's an outline on the back of the service sheet so you can see where we're going. As, uh, if you've been here over the last, um, well, four out of the last five Sundays, you will have heard nothing but bad news. 64 verses from Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20 have contained nothing but bad news that you and me, as human beings, our default position, the way we enter the world, the way we then subsequently live, that we are utterly unrighteous. That means we are not in a right relationship with God. And the way we live, you know, our orientation, our ambition, um, our morality is evidence of that. And Paul, over those 64 verses, has built up a watertight case. All human beings, whenever they've lived, wherever they've lived, of every race, of every social position, of every creed or culture, whether they're Jews or whether they're Gentiles, whether they're the immoral or whether they're moralizing the self-righteous, whether they're religious or irreligious, are without exception sinful and guilty. And what more, he points out, it's inexcusable. And so they are left speechless before God, to whom they must give account. And that's a terrible human predicament to describe. There's no ray of light. There's no flicker of hope. There's no prospect of rescue. The inescapable conclusion is that we are not only guilty but we're absolutely helpless to do anything, and so it all looks dreadfully hopeless. God's intention is clearly in exposing our sinfulness, isn't just, though, to make us feel bad. He wants us to feel desperate desperate enough to wrestle with the question that Job did centuries before in the Old Testament. Job 9.2. Job agrees with God's diagnosis of human nature. He says, indeed I know that this is true. 
but he asks the question of God, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? He recognises what we do, that there is an enormous chasm between our natural default state and God's character. We are unrighteous and he is righteous. Who is the one who's going to bridge the chasm? On Midsummer's Day in 1980, I caught a flight to Stockholm. It turned out not to be the best day to fly to Sweden because it's a public holiday. And if you want to spend the day in their airport, well, do it. But it's not very interesting. Anyway, I got my Scandinavian Airways flight late in the evening up to the north to a place called Lulio, which is on the uh, Arctic Circle. It's actually a port, and it's where the Gulf of Bothnia begins to uh, curve round, and eventually Sweden connects with Finland. I was there to um, see an old friend of mine who I'd grown up with, and he had married a Swedish ballet dancer. Uh, um, she was in the Royal Ballet in Sweden, very good. Um, but he and I were going to have three weeks of adventure. He was married and got permission, and I was still a bachelor and had no attachment. So, the first week, we're going to sail to Finland. The second couple of weeks, we were going to leg it over the mountains between Sweden and Norway. So, we got the train to a place called Merjek, and then we got a bus to Jokmok, and then we got a seaplane when the roads ran out, and we, uh, we were in it, there were two laps, the Sami people, and they had two of their dogs, huskies, and there was my friend Langton, and there was me. I was sitting next to the pilot. The pilot kept doing this, you know, swatting midges. I felt that a little disconcerting because I'm sure out of my kind of window, which I could have kind of opened, I could touch the mountains, which were probably about at the back of the church there. It's a bit too close for comfort when he's not paying uh, what I considered to be attention, really. So, we then, uh, from Jokmok, uh, uh, we arrive smoothly on a lake uh, at a place called Kvikjok. If you're taking notes, that's got five Ks in it. Um, and only four other letters. How you could make... Yeah. Well, if you, got, if you were Swedish and got K's in Scrabble, you'd be doing very well, wouldn't you, really? Anyway, we then started walking. It's 24 hours of daylight at that time of the world, because of where it is. But there are no human beings to be seen. Nobody lives there. You see the odd Arctic fox or Arctic hare, white against the melting tundra. To get over the mountain range, we had to cross the edge of the largest glacier on the border, called the Suliterma Glacier. We arrived at the point where the melted water from the glacier was flowing out of what looked like a mouth. And the water is flowing out and the snow and ice is all above it. And we sat down in the sunshine for a rest, or at least I did. It was at that point that both of us, quite independently, did something stupid and life-threatening. I sat eating, not that that's necessarily threatening, but he went on walkabout and he went up the side of the, the mouth of the glacier 
through the snow and ice, and then I couldn't see him. Going over the edge of the mouth of a melting glacier in the middle of summer is a crassly stupid, risky thing to do. And then I didn't see him. Had he fallen through a crevasse? Was his kind of fate to be kind of frozen alive at the bottom of this crevasse? And then 35 years later, when global warming had caught up to be kind of thawed out and float down the river, what was I to do? Set off after him? That would be crazy. Fortunately, he appeared down the other side, across the river from me. So we've now got a problem. He is one side of the river, which is Norway, and I'm on the other side of the river, which is Sweden. How are we going to reconnect? I'm not going to do what he's just done. That is far too risky. So I chance my luck by trying to wade through the river. Freezing cold. And I had a pretty massive rucksack on my back. I started in the shallows, but how deep is the water going to be? I carried on. It got deeper. And as it got deeper, the river sped up. I started to topple. Fortunately, I didn't go under, because in retrospect, I don't think I'd have come up again with that amount of weight on my back. I abandoned my foolish attempt to bridge the gap between us. I couldn't do it. He had the compass, and I had the map. <laughs> the river was too wide to be heard across, but I gesticulated and he got the message. I was going to go down the river, and so we set off on either side. The mist, of course, comes down. Fortunately, I managed to find what I was looking for, which was a bridge built by the Swedish army at a particular narrow point in the river. If it had survived the winter freeze-thaw, that would have been my salvation. Although the mist had come down, as I say, I found it. It was over a 50-foot drop into a very fast-flowing river. Many of its planks were missing. Two of its eight steel ropes which held it up had snapped. I had a think. I made my risk assessment. Not very difficult, since there wasn't an alternative, really. I said a prayer and off I went, and I got to the other side. Fortunately, when I got to the other side and I started going back up the river to try and find my friend, the mist cleared. As I looked down, 200 feet below me, is him going in the opposite direction, timely opening of the clouds. Four days later, we arrived in uh, civilization in Norway. You see, the point of the story is that the Sw Swedish army engineers had provided for me what I could not have provided for myself. I had been in a pretty hopeless situation. It was six days back to that lake where we'd been dropped off and nobody lived there. I was desperate. I don't think I could have reconnected with him any other way but others had made it possible for me to do what
what I could not do. Something similar is what God does for us in our unrighteous state, in a state where we're facing judgment and an eternity separated from him, but just can't do anything of our own accord to enable us to be righteous, to be acceptable to him. And then, in this passage, after those 60-odd verses of doom and gloom, but really reality, we have these words, but God. Two words made up of three letters serving as a hinge between the fate of humanity linking a doomed trajectory to a highway to heaven. This is the start of the good news. In the English translation, it's a paragraph, verses 21 to 26. But in the original, it's all just one sentence. Either way, it's very likely the greatest statement in the entire Bible. It is here that we see in summary, exactly who we are. We see the inner depth of the character of God and we discover what it is that he has done for us to be saved. Martin Luther refers to this lot of six verses as the chief point and the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and in fact the whole Bible. The Australian uh, biblical scholar Leon Morris says that these verses are possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. John Stott, commenting on these verses, says, over against the unrighteousness of some and the self-righteousness of others, Paul sets the righteousness of God. Over against God's wrath resting on evildoers, he sets God's grace to sinners who believe. Over against judgment, he sets justification. So if there's one passage in scripture that we need to really fully understand, it's this section of Romans, which is why we're going to give three Sunday mornings to just covering six verses. One verse today... Two next week, three next week and two the week after. In between, I invite you to perhaps print out this, uh, these few verses, carry them around with you at different moments of the day when you've got some spare time. Think, reflect on them, because it's through them that you will really understand the character of God and the difficulty he had in enabling us to be declared righteous before him, acceptable to him, in a way that upholds his character and his sense of justice that is reflected in the law. How he manages to reconcile those two aspects of his character as judge and ruler of the universe. But this week we're looking at how this righteousness of God's is revealed by his word. Despite our inability to obey the law, God's salvation 
could have been found in uh, the Old Testament scriptures. It's there for us to see. So this verse, 21, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets is just a summary way of saying the Old Testament. The first five books are the books of Moses, and the rest of the Old Testament is either the history that involves all the prophets or the teaching of the prophets. So after 64 verses of sin, we have two words, but God to relieve us. Two words which Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous uh, preacher of the... uh, the 20th century, middle of the 20th century, um, both here and in Ephesians 2.8, where these two words also occur, <coughs> writes this, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. Because here, of course, is divine intervention. What we couldn't do for ourselves, God has now intervened to do for us. We who are unrighteous and so under God's wrath are not able to come up with an effective solution. But fortunately, God has intervened to do so. And we read of this righteousness from God. Well, this righteousness, God is righteous in his character, in who he is. Um, <clears throat> and he's also righteous in the way that he deals with us in the, in the workings of the universe, in the way he deals with us as human beings. He has to do everything in conformity to his character. So his law reflects his character. And if people disobey his law, then of course he has to punish them. But what he kind of desires also to do is to bring rebellious human beings back into a relationship with him, where they're on a right standing with him, where he can accept them, where his love, which motivated him to create the universe, can be reciprocated by us who receive it. Now, it's vitally important to kind of grasp what the righteousness of God is. Martin Luther, who was a monk, in 1515 started to give a series of lectures on Paul's letter to the Romans at the University of Wittenberg. And he says, I greatly long to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. And nothing stood in my way but the one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. But then he understood that it also meant that God had worked out a way to justify the unrighteous, but in a righteous way. He writes, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone unto paradise 
the whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me, he says, a gateway to heaven. He got it. He discovered how God gives him hope in what otherwise sounds like a desperate situation. The Roman, the Roman poet Horace wrote giving advice to other writers who wrote tragedies. And he said, do not bring a god onto the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a god to solve it. And Luther took up those words and applied them to the forgiveness of sins. Here, he said, is a problem which needs God to solve it. So true. For sinful human beings can't solve it, though we desperately need a solution to it. It's our problem. It is us who need to be forgiven. And what Paul will tell us here in these uh, verses or so is that the problem has been properly solved by the grace of God who has sent Christ as the solution, the means of forgiveness and the guarantor of our acceptance. And this righteousness is a provision apart from the law. As a way of getting right with the law, uh, right with God, the law is a dead end. It's just not the way. I mean, even leaving aside the fact that our default position is that we're born orientated away from God, that's what original sin means, and that we consequently live a life that reflects that. You know, we're not in a position to, but even if you put that on one side, you've only got to make one mistake, and there's immediately a barrier between us and God. He's pure perfection. He cannot be contaminated. He cannot have his character crossed. Everything would fall apart if he allowed that to be the case. And you think about it. One wrong thought, one wrong word, one wrong action a day, three a day, 21 a week, over a thousand a year. How many is that in your life? Now, well, the older you get, the worse it gets. It doesn't work, does it? Clocking up brownie points with God. Because you're never going to get enough because you've already made one mistake already. And you probably made considerably more. But there is a way, apart from the law, that he can grant us a righteous status before him. And we read that he's made it known. The expression made it known or manifest is a word that Paul had previously used in Romans 1.19 when we read of God making himself known or uh, making himself evident to humanity through his wonderful creation. And it's used again here in the perfect tense where he's made his righteousness known through the historical death of Christ. Whereas in 1.17, when it's a present tense, 
it it's used as making known by sharing the good news or the gospel, the message of salvation, which is, of course, ongoing. And there were even big hints, predictions in the Old Testament where God had made known or manifest what he is going to do through his intervention in Christ. It was all in the law and the prophets, in the writings of Moses and the prophets who followed him. The primary purpose of the Old Testament was to point to the righteousness of God that would one day be fully made known in Christ. And Paul's point is that what he's writing is not some novelty. Sure, the death of Christ itself and God coming into the world in the person of Christ is new and unique. But the whole way of making us right with God had always been revealed in the word of God. Isaiah 59 <coughs> is a thumping great hint of what's to come. God's provision of a righteousness for us. After 15 verses recounting uh, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, we have the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation. <coughs> this, um, this week, oh, hang on, I need some more water. <coughs> right, this, um, this week we've learnt something or be reminded of the separation of powers in our constitution. <coughs> we have discovered that there's the legislature, parliament, and there's the judiciary, the law courts, and that they are separate, as is the executive, the government. At times they take different lines, but then they have different functions and roles, and that preserves our liberty. So judges don't pass the law, Parliament does. Judges interpret and apply the law. So it's quite possible for a judge to sometimes, um, in his court, to have to follow the law when he, as a private individual, <coughs> might think there's no case to answer. But he doesn't have that liberty. He has to follow the law. God is never in that position because God is both the legislature, the parliament which makes the laws, and he's the judiciary, the one who implements the laws. He can never have a split mind. So what God has in his head is that he has this strong characteristic of righteousness in which he has to punish us who've rebelled against him and done subsequent things wrong which not only hurt themselves but hurt other people. And so he has, a, has to uphold justice. But also in his character he has love. And the reason why he created the universe 
was so that he and us could enjoy a relationship of love together. So he has a problem. But we might think, how on earth is he going to be able to square that circle? Well, he can, and he's worked out a way. And it involves something that he and the Son and the Spirit worked out long before Jesus ever came to do it. You can see that in the Old Testament. But we also have hints of it in the writings of Paul, that long before the creation of the universe, they worked out exactly how they were going to achieve that. And we're going to find that out in the next two weeks. So as they say, don't miss the next instalments. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, two chapters of what could sound like doom and gloom because it does correctly analyse our own state of heart and mind. And it's only when we realise that we are desperate that we contemplate turning to you for a solution, which we look forward to graciously discovering in the remaining verses of this passage. Amen.